Well, this time of year, uh, there are a lot of uh, Facebook memes or things going around I've noticed that, that call us to remember. Uh, Memorial Day, you probably noticed, there's a lot of uh, things that people posted uh, to uh, remember and honor those who served and risked their lives uh, for the protection of our country. The anniversary of uh, D-Day was last week, so you probably saw similar things where there's a message of something to the effect of, we will never forget, Right? will never forget. What we are willing to stop and remember often shows us what's important to us. It shows us what we value. And so this is why when we forget a birthday or an anniversary or something like that, we kind of cringe because we know there's value attached to remembering. And so in the uh, church calendar, if you want to call it that, Christmas and Easter are, of course, those major times of remembrance during the year that you're so familiar with. And at Redemption, we're of the conviction that Pentecost ought to be a higher priority in the broader church calendar than is typical. Pentecost marks the coming of the Holy Spirit and how he ushered in this new age of which we're a part. And it's not only important that we understand this person of God, but also that we learn what is his ministry and how do we receive his ministry as Christians, he is, after all, the member of the Godhead with whom we have the most interaction, right? Because he is our counselor, he's our guide, he's with us. Maybe another way to think about it is where would we be without the Holy Spirit? Well, we'd be blind to the most glorious being in the universe. We would know nothing of his glory without the Holy Spirit. We wouldn't know our purpose as his creatures, we would have no hope to change or we wouldn't be able to benefit from the reading of the scriptures. We'd just pick up the book and every time it wouldn't be sensible to us. But instead, the Holy Spirit allows us to be spiritually alert, new creations who are being remade into the image of Christ as we grow and endure um, and mature and rejoice and learn. All those things are happening because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so there's a lots of things that we could delight in this morning as we think about him and his ministry, but I wanted to focus on something in particular. In your insert this morning, uh, the point is there, and it's simply this. The powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit has been made available to all. The powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit has been made available to all. Now, I'm going to do things a little bit differently here this morning than we typically do. We're typically marching through a book of the Bible, or we're in 1 Samuel, uh, and we're doing that, and so we typically start by standing and reading that, but I want to give us a little bit of the backstory before we read our text in Acts 2, because I think it'll help us see what's there uh, a little more clearly. So, the backstory um, is we find in the book of Acts, if you're not there, go ahead and turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay, there's some in the lobby, grab one. Um, and look up the book of Acts, chapter 1. And here's a little bit of the backstory. This is how the book of Acts starts, which kind of helps us understand our text. It says in verse 1, chapter 1, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, quote, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. The reason I wanted to stop and read that is because we need to understand that Jesus lays the groundwork for what happens in chapter 2 by referring to this promise of the Father. Now, he clarifies 
earlier, you'll notice that the promise of the Father is really this baptism of the Holy Spirit is what, that, what he's referring to. He, John baptized people uh, in water, and Jesus has this other way that this is going to happen. And whatever Jesus' new way of baptism is, which involves the Holy Spirit, is going to happen not many days from now. Okay? Now, the disciples must have been disappointed when Jesus ascended, right? He's gone. Even though Jesus told them it's to their advantage that he goes away because the Holy Spirit can come. But they must have had some type of expectation around, what, was, what are we waiting for? You know? What does it mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? What's that going to be like? And it's most likely that what they would have done is gone to what they knew, which was the Old Testament, right? For reference, to understand what that meant. And so, here are a few passages that may have been going through their minds at the time, or just some background on this promise of this Spirit. In Isaiah chapter 11, there's this description of this Messiah figure who's saturated with the Holy Spirit. He's full of the Spirit. And so he's able to bring about God's kingdom in righteousness and justice and all the things that we're looking for. And then in verse 11 of Isaiah 11, it says, In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. And listen from where he's going to do that. From Assyria and Egypt and Pathros. And they list all these nations that are all over the place. So this Messiah figure is going to be anointed by the Holy Spirit, and there's going to come a time when all his people are going to be gathered together again. In Isaiah 32, it talks about how Israel is going to be destroyed and typical judgment, but then in verse 15 it says, quote, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. Isaiah 44, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour out on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Ezekiel 37, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. So, given the background of all this language around the giving of the Holy Spirit, there's a lot of last day kind of references in these passages in the Old Testament. So at first we think that the apostles are getting a little hasty in verse 6 when they say, well, when, does this mean the kingdom's going to come? But the reason they're asking that question is because the giving of the Spirit is linked to God's return so often in the Old Testament, it's kind of natural to expect that. Does that make sense? So that's why... They're thinking people are going to be baptized in the Spirit. That must mean the end is near. And as human beings, it's easiest for us to go to the theory that's the, the, the most painless and simple and straightforward, right? But that's not what's going to happen. And Jesus, in this section in Acts 1, starts to direct them away from that kind of expectation because he says, you notice in verse 8, that they're going to receive power. This baptism of the Holy Spirit involves receiving power, and you think, power for what? And he says, in order to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And this is the first cue that something's a little bit different about what Jesus is talking about than those Old Testament passages. Because when God returns in glory in that final day, he's not going to need people like going around knocking on doors saying, hey, guess what? God's here, and put some door hangers on the doorknobs, and you know what I mean? Like... No messengers are going to be required when that day comes because it's going to be obvious to all, right? You don't need messengers when you're God returning. So, so the Spirit's going to empower us to be his witnesses. You'll notice in verse 2 of Acts chapter 1, it said that Jesus, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, and we're not sure exactly what those are, but we do know the command of the Great Commission is given from the resurrected Lord to the apostles at the end of the Gospels. And so really we're seeing that Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit is coming for power for a specific reason, to make disciples, because that final season isn't here yet. 
So we can cling to the promise that he's going to return. It's just that this promise of the Father that Jesus is referring to explains that this promise is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, when the Spirit comes in the Old Testament, it's not just to empower a witness. There's all these, these internal realities that are in the Old Testament that all the covenants of the Old Testament fall, fall slightly short of. So, for example, in keeping the law, right, is an external thing, typically. Of course, it meant that, that God wanted a circumcised heart, and that, that involved the heart. But it was external. The sacrifices and the practices and the priests and the temples and the offerings and all the utensils and all that stuff is all external things meant to, to facilitate an internal renewal, but it falls short of that. And that's why God has the mother of all promises in this new covenant. Listen to the language that, that we find in the Old Testament about this new covenant that's going to come, this new way of relating to God. And what I want you to do as I read these passages is to listen for those internal things, those internal realities that are going to change when this new era begins. Jeremiah 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant they broke, though I was their husband, (laughs) declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Do you notice the internal things that are going to change? Last one, Ezekiel 36, 26 to 28. Speaking the new covenant, he says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There's another one in Joel 2 that we're going to let Peter quote here in a minute. But what are all of those passages pointing to and pushing us towards and causing us to hope in that God, there will be a day that God is going to take all of these external realities and in some mysterious way, he's going to cause them to become internal to his people. So knowledge of him will somehow come from uh, within in a certain way. We'll talk about that in a minute. And the desire to obey him and be motivated by the right things will come from within us. That the desire to fear him will come from within in some way. There will be a tangible sense of the forgiveness of sin in this new arrangement, this new deal. So there's an internalization of these realities that we see in the law and the sacrifices. And you think, how could God possibly promise stuff like this? I mean, imagine someone coming to you and saying, I will rearrange the motives of your heart. I will cause you to care about things that you wouldn't care about otherwise. I mean, it's almost like God would have to take up residence within us for that to work, right? And astonishingly, that's exactly what he does. So to be baptized by the Spirit, back to our kind of main question, means to be indwelt by the Spirit of God and empowered to glorify Him. And the presence of the Holy Spirit or this baptism of the Holy Spirit is the explanation for how God's new covenant is going to work. It's how laws get written on the heart and how motives are purified and how understanding is possible. This is the promise that Jesus is saying to wait for. Now, now we get to read took a little while, I know, but don't worry, I've, I've accounted for that, okay? Uh, let's open your Bibles to Acts 2, uh, verses 1 through 21. Let's stand if you're physically able 
just in reverence to the word of God, and let's see how this happens, okay? This big promise that uh, Jesus has talked about. Here's what it says in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in these last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Now, there's a lot that could be said about this text. And I actually interrupted Peter's sermon halfway, which I feel semi-bad about. But we have to focus on something specific And I'd like to focus on this aspect of just the astounding news that the Holy Spirit is available to all. That's what I want us walking away marveling at this morning. So, the way we're going to do that is twofold. Uh, One, now that we have the backstory, there's good news for all, and then there's a spirit for all. The good news for all we see in verses 2 through 13 And from the very beginning, we notice that the Holy Spirit uh, is empowering the the followers of Jesus to share this good news far and wide from the very start. It's the opening act. It's It's his desire for the Trinity to be known and glorified everywhere. And so that's where he starts. Now, how do we see that? Well, we see that because, one, the timing, the timing of this event in Acts chapter 2. Pentecost was one of the three festivals that Israelite men were required to attend. And it goes by another name, if you read in the Old Testament, as the Feast of Weeks. And uh, it was a celebration of the harvest. It fell 50 days after Passover and was really intended, that's what Pentecost means, 50th. So that's why. Um, And it was intended to celebrate, to give thanks to God for the harvest and and for those things. And so in Jerusalem, it was typically around 100,000 people or so in the population of Jerusalem. And during one of these feasts, where many were coming in from the outside, it swelled to over a million people. So Jerusalem was just packed. Very, very busy place. In verse 5, it said that there was dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And so this new era of God's plan, he wanted to start when people from all over could hear. Because he is an evangelist as well. And so the timing shows us that this message is intended to be good news for all. But then also this entrance is phenomenal. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It doesn't just kind of sort of happen. There's, these, there's this mighty wind that blows through. 
which if you know your Old Testament, the wind is, is sometimes a, a personification or a, an indication that God's presence is near, right? And, but then it's coupled with this fire as well. This, this scene of type of judgment or of a, a, an awesome sense that God is at work. And you, you think about the, the pillar of, of cloud and fire in the Old Testament. And these ways that God's presence is, is manifested and almost is illustrated. And so the Holy Spirit uses those two things to essentially scream, I'm, I'm here. I'm present. This dramatic thing that people would have noticed and flocked and, and come and to see, what, what is this noise? What's going on? The Holy Spirit is a great marketer of God's glory. And so he's begun that process through this dramatic entrance that we find. But then we see this powerful ministry happening. There were over 120 people gathered in that room at the start. And so now they are empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered for ministry. And what did he equip them to do? Well, to be witnesses. Right? To broadcast the accomplishments of Jesus. It says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the Holy Spirit is literally supplying the ministry and the power to pull this off. You think, well, what is he doing? Clearly, these tongues refer to the languages that they're speaking. Okay? There's a very direct connection. You'll see it in this text. So he's, he's empowering these Galilean guys with very little linguistic flexibility. They might have known a little bit of Greek because that was widely known to conduct business and things like that. But the Holy Spirit bothers to empower these men to speak in specific dialects. Not just Koine Greek, not just one would wouldn't, well, some of them might have understood part, down to the specific dialect of these people. He's empowering them to preach. Now, they were preaching to all Kinds of people, right? If you, in the modern day, it'd be the Mediterranean, it'd be Iran, Iraq, Asia, North Africa, Alexandria, Rome, the island of Crete. People from everywhere are hearing this. And it says after that big list of nations, what are they preaching? They're preaching about the works, the mighty works of God, what God has done, who he is, what he's accomplished. Now, it's likely that these were Jewish people, right? Because they've returned, they're in Jerusalem, they're there for the the feast, but they're just rehearsing what God has done, almost setting up for the crescendo of Peter's explanation for what's going to happen. You know, what, what are they preaching for? What's the result they're looking for? Later on, Peter says to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, and he says that they'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then he says, that promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Just to make it perfectly clear. The Holy Spirit is doing it this way so that the word explodes. And the gospel is known everywhere. You think this is normal to us, right? Verse 21 is normal to us. Yeah, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Yeah, that's, that's like standard stuff. You almost hear that weekly. But that's, that's not normal to them. At all. To think that North, North Africans, God-fearers, who just have heard about this God of Israel, that, that they could call on the name of the Lord and be saved and even be filled with the Holy Spirit is a radical idea. Everyone? Herod? Everyone? This, this, would, this would have landed with shock. And it's coming out of Joel too, so it's not like it's new news. It's just newly applied to all these people who are hearing it for the first time. Africans and islanders and intellectuals and farmers and everyone listen to this good news because it all applies to you. That's new. And so it creates this stir and these people don't know what to do with it. It says they're bewildered and then they come up with this ridiculous theory, Right? I mean, this is a really stupid idea for what's going on. Yeah, 100, over 100 people decided to get hammered before 9 in the morning, and they learned dialects that they didn't know before. I mean, that, you, you, that's just grasping at straws, right? I mean, that's what we do, and we don't know what, how to explain it. It's the most likely option. 
Drunkenness doesn't typically give you linguistic flexibility in this way, okay? And so it, it just shows that they just, don't, they just don't know what to do with this. People have no category for what's going on. And so someone needs to interpret this scene. This just seems out of control, like everyone's hearing these messages from all over the place, and that seems to be okay, and everyone can call on the name of the Lord, and, and someone has to, has to stand up and say, okay, guys, here's what's going on, and that's what Peter does. And that's, he explains in our second point that the Spirit is for all. Now he kind of just outright dismisses their ridiculous theory. But then he just gets to quoting the Old Testament. And he's basically saying, what, what you're witnessing is God making good on a promise that he made thousands of years ago. It's happening. And so he reads Joel 2, verses 28 through 32. And interestingly enough, Joel, in this section, you'll notice 17 and 18 are really the promise of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and 19 and 20 and, uh, 19 and, 20 and 21 are more about uh, that final day that he's going to return. It's like he's, uh, some have compared it to looking at a mountain range from a far distance where it just looks like a, a linear, all those mountains are all together kind of a thing. Uh, that's what this promise is. But then as you get closer to that mountain range, you notice that actually these are a series of mountain ranges that are separated by hundreds of miles. But from a distance, they look like they're all the same. And so there's really two promises here. One is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which is happening at Pentecost. And there's the second promise of the final day where there's all this this dramatic description of blood and moon and all those things, which is a further mountain range, which is going to come, but in time. And Peter says, this is exactly what Joel was talking about. I mean, imagine being there. Watching the promise of God being fulfilled in your midst. Joel is talking about this specific instance, this afternoon. And what an amazing thing that happened. So we, we, can't, we can't get into to blood and moons and those things. We're looking at specifically the giving of the Holy Spirit in verses 17 and 18. Okay? And I want to draw your attention to this idea that, that the Spirit is available to all. Notice what it says. Uh, and in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And then he explains what he, what he means by that. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Men, women, that distinction isn't going to matter. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Young and old. They're going to be be filled by the Holy Spirit. They're going to be baptized by this Holy Spirit. It's not like like getting a license or drinking alcohol. You know, turn 20, you get the Holy Spirit. It's not that way. Verse 18. And then he says, even on, even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. This would have just knocked them to the floor. Because the Holy Spirit, you remember, was, was Samson, right? It's King David. It's, it's getting an ox goat and killing 300 Philistines. And it's, it's that kind of stuff. And now you're saying that the, the most piteous servant is going to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. And that is radical news. That is a generous pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The word is just this abundance. It's this almost excessive idea, overflowing. So this would have really shaken them. Now, this is not to say that the Holy Spirit wasn't at work in the Old Testament. He's there from the time of creation, right? And he's doing all kinds of things in the Old Testament, so we need to clarify that. But but there seems to be a difference. We see in John 7, uh, 37 to 39, it says this. And notice that there's some kind of a change that happens. On the last of the day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit. Again, that internal reality being uh, made manifest. 
about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were, were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So there's a sense here in John 7 that there, there is a way that the Spirit's at work in the Old Testament, but when Jesus is glorified and there's this new era, it's going to be different. We see that as Peter tells us, that the Holy Spirit inspires Scripture, right? No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He's inspiring Old Testament Scripture. The Holy Spirit empowers different uh, like contractors and artisan people to, to chip in with the tabernacle. They have certain skills and, that he's going to use. He even empowers leaders for certain tasks, like Moses. Do you remember... When Moses was complaining to God, saying, this nation is too much, I'm sick of leading this people, I can't handle it anymore. He even says, if this is going to be how it is, just kill me now. <laughs> That's what he said to God. It's a passage I turn to often. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but um, in Numbers, go ahead and turn there, in Numbers 11. And I want you to see this, Numbers 11, look at what God does. Here's God's response to his complaint session. Numbers 11, verses 16 and 17. The Lord is so patient with us. <laughs> it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you, and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself, or yourself alone. So this is one of the ways that the Spirit worked, right? He took some of the Spirit. I don't know how that works, I'm not sure the mechanics of that, but he empowers other people to lead. Now, look at verse 24 in Numbers 11, because a fascinating thing happens. It says, so Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. Sounds like the plan, verse 26. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied, which was a sign that the spirit had come on them, in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. This kind of reminds us of when Jesus uh, and when John the Baptist are ministering, and there's, there's this fear of competition. Uh, they're baptizing more people in that river over there. John, this is a problem. He's like, it's not, it's not a problem. It's a good thing, right? Listen to what Moses' reply is in light of what we've been talking about in verse 29. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Moses is saying, It's fine. And just imagine what it would be like if all of God's people had the Holy Spirit. He's saying that, like, that would be incredible. That would, be, that would blow his mind. And today we're saying God has done that. What was unimaginable to Moses is our day-to-day -day reality as the people of God. God indwells every believer, every follower. It's a remarkable change. It's a remarkable announcement, and that's why it gets the attention it does. So Peter, even though we interrupted his sermon, is saying, you are witnessing the mighty spirit of God going global with this good news message. He's going to do that, and he's going to actually empower and indwell every single God follower, God worshiper, no matter the gender, no matter the age, no matter the socioeconomic status. He's going to be that generous in the pouring out of his Holy Spirit. 
And it started today. So, that's why we shouldn't lose sight and, and, and we have the opportunity to celebrate that the Holy Spirit is made available to all today. Now, I wanted to anticipate a couple of questions that you might have about this, and then we'll get to implications for this, okay? A few of the questions I, I think might be surfacing, maybe not, uh, but what, number one would be this. Well, if God gives his Holy Spirit with this kind of generosity, are all people indwelt by the Holy Spirit then? I mean, it kind of sounds like this just indiscriminate, generous pouring. So does that mean all are? And the short answer is no. And here's why. John 14, verses 16 to 17. Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. But then he says, Whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, it talks about how the natural person cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. In Romans 8, it talks about how, how we are naturally hostile to the law of God. And so, by saying that God is being generous to pour out His Spirit is not to say that it's kind of this like Pocahontas ooze that just kind of falls on every living being. That's not what we're saying. There is still a condition in which the Holy Spirit indwells a person because for a holy God to inhabit an unholy person, there needs to be mediation, there needs to be an intercessory, there needs to be some bridge in between. A sacrifice that would exhaust the wrath of God and a source of righteousness that would credit a perfect reputation to the recipient of this Holy Spirit. And that's what the gospel is, right? That's still the condition of that, just to be clear. That's the first question. The second anticipated question you might have is, weren't the apostles already followers of Jesus? Right? I mean, Peter's confession in Matthew is really clear. And so, wouldn't they be given the Spirit then? Why are they given it after they trusted Him? And does, does this give some credibility to the idea that some Christians hold that the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs after someone becomes a Christian? So, what we need to say here is, honestly, it does seem like the apostles, and likely others in the book of Acts, repented and believed in Christ prior to Pentecost, Right? And, and Peter's, um, like Peter was an example of that. It, it does seem like there was a confession and that the Holy Spirit did come secondarily in that scenario. Not just the apostles, but people in Acts. You, you notice as you read the book of Acts, they stumble across a group that, oh, we just heard about John's baptism. We don't know who the Holy Spirit is. And then they're given the Holy Spirit. So, what do we do with that? Some of our Pentecostal-leaning brothers and sisters interpret these passages to teach that the baptism of the Spirit is a secondary event to salvation, and oftentimes that the speaking in tongues is a manifestation of that baptism, as you see uh, modeled in the book of Acts. And so the question is, is that true? If that's true, then my sermon this morning doesn't mean a whole lot, to be honest. So this is an important question. Should we be praying and seeking a baptism of the Holy Spirit like they're talking about? I don't, I don't believe we should, and here's why, okay? Three reasons. One, Scripture speaks to the uniqueness of this time period in both John 7 that we read, that the Spirit wasn't given until Jesus was glorified, and also Hebrews 9, verses 8 through 10. In Hebrews 9, it talks about a, a, a time of reformation, where there's going to be a different way to relate to God because of this. and there's, So even in Scripture, there seems to be that this time period is, is kind of an in-between thing, right? The Old Covenant's still functioning, but the New Covenant's being established, but Jesus hasn't died and, and risen again. And so there's this odd in-between time. And the Scripture seems to address that and call it that. That's number one. Number two... The Holy Spirit is allowed to break from his pattern in the New Testament if he sees fit to. Okay? So do you remember the impact 
on the apostles when they would go to a Gentile group and preach and then see that the Lord granted this Gentile group the Holy Spirit? Do you remember what kind of impression that left with the apostles? Because they were really struggling with this idea that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. They thought, ah, that doesn't really square with what we've been told for hundreds of years. (laughs) And so they were resistant to this idea that it's going to be this broad and this wide. And so the Holy Spirit... I think it gives that example and gives those scenarios to accomplish a different objective. Namely, to teach the apostles that the Gentiles are going to be included. And Peter, the guy who is the most resistant to this, becomes the greatest advocate for Gentile inclusion at the Jerusalem Council. And he kind of has this mic drop statement in Acts 15.8 when he says this. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them By giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And made no distinction between us and them. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. A few verses later it says. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul. As they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Meaning the Holy Spirit's intention for allowing those exceptions. Was to structure the nature of the church in this kind of in-between time. And to teach the apostles that the Gentiles would be included. That's number two. Number three is biblical. God the Spirit indwells a follower of Jesus from the time that they trust him. Because that unique kind of time period has passed, right? And we know that the Holy Spirit is necessary for someone to even understand their need for Christ. That he regenerates them. And that's what kind of flips the light on. And then you see the glory of Jesus and you respond as a result of that. But the Holy Spirit is primary in salvation. And so we, we can't have the secondary thing. If he is absolutely necessary up front, we believe it's because he's with the believer from the beginning. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen is very difficult to understand from a secondary baptism kind of perspective. Because listen to what it says. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So this is describing being baptized by the Holy Spirit or being in the Holy Spirit and being in the body as simultaneous things. And it's hard to imagine a scenario where we're joining the body, but we're not indwelt or not able to be filled by the Holy Spirit. This is saying those are one and the same thing. Later on in Ephesians 1, in Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, initial, upfront, becoming a Christian type stuff, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the third reason why we believe this is because we believe the Bible teaches this very clearly. That the Spirit is present from the beginning. Now, why would we talk about kind of these different theories? Because this matters, right? If you're not certain that you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, how do you approach sanctification? How can you pick up your Bible and expect to get anything out of it? How can you expect to be led with with a sense of authority as you share the God. You know what I mean? Like, the implications for that are massive. So it's not just one of those little divides that doesn't really matter and, well, we kind of all believe. There's a big difference between those things. It doesn't mean that people who have that leading are not Christians. I wouldn't say that at all. But we need to be careful. We need to understand that when, when we have the new covenant, this is what makes the new covenant new and great and glorious. And we don't want to be have, under the new covenant, but still operating under the, uh, the structure of the old. We are new covenant Christians, and so we want to live in that sense. That kind of theology can kind of lead to a, a distinction amongst Christians. That there are some Christians who, uh, there's all kinds of names for them, and then there's spirit-filled Christians, and then you're kind of striving to be one or the other, and it, it can lead to a... Uh, kind of a divide that, that we think is biblically unnecessary and unhelpful. So, maybe those questions didn't bother you at all. Now we're back on track, okay? Uh, for those of you who did, hopefully that was helpful. So let's revisit our point. Let's talk about why this matters. 
Okay, and then we get to celebrate uh, communion together as well. So what was our point, Ben? You talked about all this other stuff. The point is, the powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit is available to all. That's the glory. That's the thing you should talk about over lunch. That's the thing that should bug you in your mind and you should delight in as you're going to bed tonight. But what we want to do is personalize this statement to say, the powerful ministry of the Spirit has been made available to you. It's nice to know that he's kind of out there available, but it's different to think the Holy Spirit is available to me in my personal life, where I am right now. The Holy Spirit is present, interested, engaged. A couple of implications for this truth. First, if you're not a Christian, this explains a lot, okay? It helps you define what a Christian is. A Christian is fundamentally not a person who votes a certain way or has a certain family heritage or who reads a certain book or who practices moral things. A Christian is a person who has been transformed and continues to be transformed by God, by the Holy Spirit. Fundamentally, at a core level, that's what a Christian is. And that happens through the gospel and because of Christ, but that's essentially your definition. And God has not only taken the initiative to save his enemies, you and I, by grace through Jesus, but he actually bothers to finish the job by being so near to us that we could say he's indwelling us. Now, this isn't, if you're not a Christian, that might sound really, really odd, like we're little robots of the Holy Spirit walking around doing his thing. And that would, that would mean that selfish Christians are really hard to understand. Because it's like we're robots and God's like that. And some Christians are like really wonky. And I, I don't really like that idea. But Christians are recovering sinners. And we are people who are learning to depend on that divine help. And we're in the process of that. We're told in Scripture that Christians have the first fruits of the Spirit. That there's this cooperation that's happening as we set our minds on the things. So this really explains why Christians can be both irritating and selfish and unexplainably kind. And a lot of people say, well, Christians are hypocrites and all this stuff and have lots of bad things to say. And, and, um, and, And just speaking for myself, I'm not sure that I totally disagree with that all the time because I know my own heart. (laughs) But what we could say to that is, is, um, God seems to to think not very highly of our ability to sanctify ourselves because he, he actually needs to come in and create something new and stay there and rebuild us into the image of Jesus. It's a very hands-on process because we are very messed up people. And so we say, yeah, that's, that's kind of why we need the Holy Spirit. And that's why we're unable to save ourselves. And God seems to agree with that because he needs to be really near to us to make that happen. It explains why Christians can endure suffering. It explains a lot of things because God can actually transform us from the inside out. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, it also explains why renewing yourself is so bloody difficult. You don't have access to those files. You can't reorder your loves. You can't start thinking differently one day without the help of the Spirit of God. You just, you can't do that. And because of this new arrangement that's possible because of Jesus, God offers to do this internal work and this recreating work, which results in actual change so that you can love your enemies and really forgive and really live for a purpose greater than yourself. And so that's the great news this morning. If you submit to God's diagnosis of your sin condition and trust in in his uh, qualifications for, for knowing and being near him, which is to trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to make you right with God, the Holy Spirit will get to work. It's good. I mean, when you're... At that point of desperation, it's really good to know that the Holy Spirit's available to all, right? 
You're like, I just don't feel qualified in the least. And this passage is saying he's available to all. Second implication is it's a big encouragement to those who are followers of Jesus. There's a lot of times where it can feel like our growth is just dependent on us. And we just don't want it enough and we're not disciplined enough and we're just not enough. And so it just feels hopeless because we feel like we're, we're it. But remembering that the Holy Spirit is actually present helps us to understand that this is a, this is a cooperative effort that God has ensured will be completed. I mean, in those days where you're just like, I, I've got nothing to offer, remembering that the Holy Spirit's available to all and he's actually in you is helpful. We don't have to feel alone in what seems like this impossible process when you don't even know what you need, when you don't even know what to pray. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. So if you're, if you're just discouraged at where you're at, Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit of God is resident within you. I'm not telling you to have hope because you're you and you should just be, you know, all that you can. I'm, I'm telling you, you have hope because God is near you. That's different. It changes the way that you get discouraged, right? That we never lack hope. You know, sometimes it's good just to know that someone knows what's going on. Even if it's not you, right? The Holy Spirit does. And he's the one who can make the changes necessary that he knows need to happen. Sometimes you don't even know what to change, what to be, what to do. The reality is we are never alone. You have a counselor. You have power. You have access to God. We are never lacking in those things because the Spirit is near. Sometimes I just, I shake my head at myself and think, there is no hope for this project. I mean, literally, just, God help me. And there's so little hope in what Ben could change and accomplish. But it's different when you think, could God the Holy Spirit do that? Could he create the longings in me? And could he mortify that sin that I don't seem to be able to understand? Could he, is it possible that he is able to do this when I don't feel like I am? And that's a whole different source of hope. And a far better one, right? He knows what he's doing. And he is in you. It's encouraging when you feel hopeless. So preach that to yourself. That the Holy Spirit is capable of bringing these things about. This is also a call to persevere. I'm going to forego this a little bit in the interest of time. But if you read through Hebrews 8 through 10, and you look at the contrast of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the biggest thing that stood out to me when I studied it this last week was that one has the ability to purify our conscience and one does not. One has the ability to get in there and actually change things around so that we last and endure. And one, those sacrifices, they're just temporary. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is encouraging to us because he's the explanation for our perseverance. He is why that can happen. I'll let you do your own study on that. The last one is this. This is a call to remember the Spirit's largest mission. The largest mission of the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit hasn't taken up residence in you purely for you. If you look at Acts and you look at what we read and you think, what motivates, what drives, what's the passion and the, the overarching purpose of the ministry of the Holy Spirit? It's to glorify his name, right? And to draw attention to the glory of Jesus and make sure that his people are preserved and to protect that glory and make, make absolutely sure that the salvation that God's people receive is applied and seen through. That's his passion. And so we need to understand that we are a part of a larger mission that the Spirit has. This command from Jesus to multiply disciples is that larger mission. It is that we endure, it is that we're comforted, it is all those things, but it's also that we would bring other people along. 
That's his passion. And if that's his passion and he's resident within us, it will slowly and increasingly become ours. It has to, right? And so the fact that the Holy Spirit is available to all, it changes the criteria of the person we're looking to evangelize. Have you ever done that? Just think, well, if I, get, if I give out grades, that person's like a C plus or a B minus. I'm not sure they're really close, you know? I don't see how God is going to really make that work. So I'm going to massage that relationship a little bit longer, and we start to kind of evaluate the likelihood of people's response. But if the Holy Spirit is available to all, then we can be indiscriminate in our sharing of the gospel. Because everyone is the Holy Spirit away from being sanctified, right? And without him, no one's getting anywhere. So kind of throw your criteria away and just make yourself available to be a part of the larger mission that the Spirit has. Bringing others along. Maybe the question is, if the Holy Spirit were to take up residence in their life, could he pull that off? Another way of thinking about the same thing. I mean, think about the most difficult, ornery, unhelpful, demanding, self-centered person you know. Is that a project too difficult for the Holy Spirit to do? Could he handle them? The Holy Spirit's been made available to all. So we need to remember, friends, that this Pentecost, this availability of the Holy Spirit, if you're not a Christian, it explains a lot about what Christians are and what it means to actually follow Jesus in an empowered way. And if you're a believer, it's, it's encouraging during times of discouragement to know that he is present. It helps us understand how it is that we persevere, and it also calls us into, and get caught up in a greater mission that the Spirit has. He's with us, folks. As I just thought about that this week, it just really changed the way I thought about some things. God Almighty is with us. Resident. Let that kick around your, your gray matter for a while. And I, I think God would, would want to use that to, um, to change the way that we, that we live and think. You know, we're going to uh, celebrate communion now. Um, and, and the connection here uh, with, you know, how is this tied to the ministry of the Holy Spirit is, like I said earlier, there's really no way this whole indwelling thing works without a sacrifice and without the righteousness of Jesus. And so you can picture, um, you know, Jesus in the upper room with the disciples and and over and over again, he's talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, right? He's kind of prepping them for when he leaves in the same kind of scene uh, that he's having. And so uh, I think it's appropriate for us to celebrate communion, remembering the, the reason why we have access to the Holy Spirit is because of the body and the blood of Jesus, right? He's the grounds on which we can be this near to God and not be consumed, I want to read to us out of 1 Corinthians 11, as some folks prepare to to serve this, Um, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup. After supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is Jesus' instruction to us. This is a time uh, that's reserved for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. Um, It doesn't really make sense to celebrate something that, that you're still weighing in on and trying to figure out. Right? But this is a marker, this is a tangible way that we uh, remind ourselves and remember uh, what Christ has done for us. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, we'd ask for you just to respectfully abstain. Uh, consider the things we've talked about. Look at God's word uh, and, 
and talk with maybe the person who brought you or talk to an elder here. We'd love to explain more about that. Um, if you are uh, a Christian, you're welcome to, to take part in this. If you're under discipline from another church, we'd ask you to abstain uh, because of what Scripture teaches about that. Uh, if you're from another church um, and you're just here visiting, you're more than welcome to participate. Uh, the body of Christ is big and wide, and so we, we want to acknowledge that here. So the way we do it here is uh, you can, uh, we're going to have a time of, of music and um, just listening. And uh, we want you just to pray and think about what's going on here. We don't want this to be rote and just kind of... Do, do, and do it through the steps kind of a thing. So do that, and as you feel led, you can come down either of these middle aisles, take a piece of bread and a cup, and return to your seat, and we're actually all going to take it together uh, later on, okay? So let me pray as we enter into this, this time of communion. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your promise. Uh, we thank you um, that from the very beginning... You knew that your people needed you to be near. Um, and Holy Spirit, you are that nearness to us. You are, you are resident with us. You are guiding us and counseling us. You're helping us. You're, you're interceding for us in ways that we don't even understand or know sometimes. Father, I pray that this week we would just have a sense that you really are available, both to help us in, in your ministry um, and also to to share this good news with others. I pray that just the, the fact that we can say the Holy Spirit is in us would not be rote. It would not be expected. It would be something that we could, we could enjoy and think about and, and savor this week as your children. So help us now during this time of communion. Uh, minister to us. Help us to uh, celebrate what you've done in your body and blood. And again, we just thank you that your perfect sacrifice open up the way for us to be near to you, that we're no longer kept from you in the Holy of Holies kind of way, but you have, you have rent that curtain and invited us near. And this is just a tangible reminder of that. So help us to draw near to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.